This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. And I'm Katie Barlow. Thank you for joining us. So on September 27th, the justices of the Supreme Court will meet for what is often called the Long Conference. It's their private meeting before the new term starts on the first Monday in October, and they'll consider all of the petitions for review that have accumulated since the beginning of July. Uh, There are usually over a thousand petitions, but the justices will grant only a handful. Last year, seven new cases for a total of four hours of argument time. We thought that this would be a good time to look ahead at the Long Conference, how the CERT process works generally, when we can expect to get orders from the Long Conference, and what cases the justices will be considering when they next meet. So Amy, to kick us off, walk us through the process from when a petition for review comes through the door to when the justices consider it at private conference. So once the court has all the briefs, and so when the petition first comes through the door, it actually stays what what we call downstairs in the clerk's office usually somewhere between 30 to 60 to 90 days later the other side has the opportunity to file what's called a brief in opposition opposing supreme court review sometimes there will be friends of the court briefs amicus briefs that urge the court to take up the case telling them why this case might be important beyond the parties to the case and then the petitioners the people who are asking the supreme court to to weigh in also get to file a reply brief. So once the court has all of those briefs, those briefs are distributed. A copy of the briefs goes to each of the justices chambers. And at that point, two things can happen. Remember that the justices get somewhere around 7,000 petitions for review each year. They take somewhere around 70, and that's in a good year. So two of the justices, Justices Samuel Alito and Justice Neil Gorsuch have their clerks, or in all likelihood, look at all of the petitions and the justices confer with their clerks and decide what they want to do with a particular case. The other seven justices have created this labor saving device that's known as the cert pool. And so if you are a justice in the cert pool, a petition for review will go to one justice and a clerk in that chambers will write what's known as the pool memo, which is a summary of the case and a recommendation about whether or not search should be granted. And so the the pool memo, I believe, is due eight days after the petition comes in. The pool memo then goes to the other six chambers. The clerks and the justices in those chambers review, and I think different chambers do it differently. They may do more research to decide whether or not they agree. Um, And then Before a conference, the justices compile what's known as a discuss list. This is a list of the cases that they actually want to talk about and vote on at the conference. And these are not public lists, but my understanding is that they're relatively short. And if a case isn't on that list, and that's the overwhelming majority of the cases, then it's just denied without the justices actually even voting on it. But if it is on the discuss list, then they go around the table and they talk about it at the conference and they vote. And if there are at least four votes to grant review, 
then the case is granted. That's a very helpful explanation. Do you think we know actually how long the long conference ever is on any given year? No, no. I mean, I think that the list is relatively short and there are probably some cases that are no brainers, but no, we don't, we don't have a good sense of how long it is, but, but we call it the long conference, presumably because there were so many petitions for review that come in that it's, it's a long conference, you know, Justice Barrett as the junior justice is the one who is kind of taking notes about which cases the court is, is going to grant and if they make changes to the question presented, what the changes are. Uh, so it, she'll, she'll be getting a workout at the long conference this year. I'm starting to think that there is a TikTok in the works explaining the long conference and the sausage making behind the, the grants of the many, many petitions that come before the court for the long conference. I think I'm going to have to do that. Um, all right. So that's kind of the background and the foundation of what happens at the long conference. So then the results, when will we hear about the cases that are considered during the long conference? That is a good question. So the long conference is one of these conferences where they traditionally release the results separately. They release one set of orders that is the grants from the long conference. And that is presumably to start the briefing clock in those cases. Um, and then a couple days later, usually on the first Monday in October, they will release the denial. Sometimes if there are calls for the views of the solicitor general, things that are not time sensitive, those will also come out. And that can be a fairly massive orders list because again, frequently they're acting on as many as a thousand cases. The court does not announce, as with so many things, the court does not announce in advance when it's gonna be releasing the grants. Um, back in the day, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now, traditionally that you could kind of count on if they had the long conference on a Monday, they'd release the grants on the Tuesday. Um, but Back in 2014, and, and we've talked about this before uh, in various podcasts, but just a refresher for, uh, we understand that not everyone has listened to every single podcast we've ever done. Back in 2014, the Supreme Court started a practice of only granting review after they had relisted cases. Um, normally they would consider a case at a conference, they would consider a case at a second conference, and then they would grant review. and. This is not something that they've ever sort of officially memorialized in any rule or anything like that. But as far as we can tell, they were they are apparently using the extra time to do extra vetting of the cases before they grant them to make sure there aren't any problems with the case that would keep the court from reaching a decision on the merits. So they don't do that with the long conference um, because they haven't had a conference in uh, months. So if they only granted relisted cases, there wouldn't be a whole lot from which to choose. So what it looks like they're doing is that instead they are taking a couple of extra days to do their additional vetting. So last year, long conference was on a Tuesday uh, because of one of the Jewish holidays, and we got grants on a Friday. So I'm guessing, this is just a guess based on past practice, that we will get grants on Thursday morning. And then the following Monday, the first Monday in October, we'll get a really thick orders list that has a long list of denials. All right, so there have already been a few cases that we have talked about on SCOTUS Blog's petitions of the week and uh, a few cases that the media has especially focused on. Which ones are you keeping an eye on? 
as you said, having done this for a while now, I'm interested in, in which ones that you're looking at coming out of the long conference. So the long conference for reporters is hard. We've gotten really spoiled with the court relisting cases before they grant them because that kind of serves them up on a platter for us. You know, if, if there were, you know, hundreds of cases on a particular conference, but they relist 10, it's a lot easier to get ready and to know what they're looking at seriously. So reporters, reporters love the relist process too. The court likes it because it, it means that they're having to dismiss fewer cases as improvidently granted. Reporters like it because it makes our job easier. So the long conference, you're kind of out there. You know, you've got all of these cases and you're trying to figure out what, what cases might be good candidates for grants. Um, there are a lot of cases that seem like plausible grants involving issues like jurisdiction and bankruptcy and compacts between states that certainly seem like the court could grant them. But I'm going to focus on some of the uh, juicier cases. And it's interesting because with the court's shift to the right last term and the possibility slash, slash expectation that the court could shift to the right some uh, even further this term, there are some petitions that are really kind of asking the court to go big. So there is a quartet of petitions, for example, asking the court to weigh in on whether or not the Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions at the national level at all. You know, it, it, this is an appeal from the DC Circuit, which vacated both the Trump administration's decision to repeal an Obama-era clean power plan, um, which established guidelines for states to limit carbon dioxide emissions, and then a clean energy rule that the Trump administration issued in its place. Um, there's a union case the, three years ago in a case called Janus. The court ruled that government employees who are represented by a union but don't belong to that union can't be required to pay a fee to cover the union's contract negotiation costs. So now there's a request to extend Janus, arguably, uh, the case called Baisley versus International Association of Machinists. The justices have been asked to weigh in on whether or not Janus and the court's other decisions involving public sector union fees apply to a challenge by a United Airlines employee to the requirement that he opt out of paying full union dues. Um, there are a couple of petitions asking the court to reconsider or clarify its decision in Employment Division versus Smith, holding that laws that are neutral and generally applicable don't violate the Constitution's free exercise clause. The question was before the court last term in Fulton versus Philadelphia, the case involving Catholic Charities and its refusal to certify same-sex uh, foster parents, um, but the court didn't decide it. So there's a case called Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany versus, versus Lacewell, and the diocese is represented by Noel Francisco, the former Solicitor General in the Trump administration. And it's, it's kind of got everything. It's a challenge to a New York regulation that requires employers to fund abortions through their employee health plans. And it has an exemption for religious employers, um, but doesn't extend to religious organizations like Catholic Charities. Um, and so among other things, it urges the court to grant review to clarify what generally applicable means under Smith or to reconsider or reshape Smith. And there were, 
I think it was a concurrence. There was at least one justice in Fulton who suggested that perhaps now is the time to reconsider Smith. Is that right? Right. There were a couple who indicated that they would have reconsidered it. And then there were a couple more who said, uh, I think it was Justice Barrett who said, this probably isn't the case to do it, but perhaps we should do it in the future. Um, And then there were some that, you know, are just kind of interesting cases. There's a case called Louisiana versus Hill. It's a challenge to a Louisiana law that requires registered sex offenders to carry identification that says sex offender. Um, The Commerce Clause could be back. It's a challenge to Congress's authority to ban cockfighting in Puerto Rico. And the challengers say, you know, this is beyond Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. There's, There's not really any interstate commerce here. Uh, this is really just about Congress's personal views on cockfighting. Folks on TikTok enjoyed that case. I think they're pulling for that case to uh, to get picked. So um, I, I did a story on that one and everyone, of course, had an opinion, but folks were interested in the Commerce Clause perhaps more than I would have originally anticipated on a social media application. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting what catches on. I mean, who would have thought, I guess it was five or six years ago, who'd even heard of the emoluments clause? Not me. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so that wraps up uh, the long conference, the key petitions that you're keeping an eye on, which we'll, we'll all keep an eye on as well. So I want to pivot for the last few minutes here and talk about, it was a bit of a busy week last week with the justices giving speeches. Of course, Justice Breyer is on a bit of a book tour talking about his new book that's out. But what is going on with the justices giving these speeches, complaining about the public perception of the court as partisan and blaming it on the media? There's, I mean, there's no way to know for sure. Like, first of all, in terms of what's going on, why they're doing it now. I think I've seen a couple of theories. Um, one theory that I tend to give a fair amount of credence to is I think they're a little sensitive right now. I think that they perhaps got a little bit more blowback than they thought from the shadow docket rulings on SB8 and the eviction moratorium and the remain in Mexico policy. Um, Another theory that I've seen is that the Supreme Court Commission is supposed to issue its findings, uh, I think, in October, and that perhaps they are trying to sort of send some signals there. Um, A third theory that also I think there's probably a little bit of there there is that they are anticipating that things are going to get better before they are. Sorry, let me start that over again. Um, A third theory that I've seen, I think there's probably a little bit of there there is that things are could get worse before they get better because they're going to have some controversial rulings coming up in the upcoming term. They've already got abortion, religion, and guns on the docket uh, with the possibility that they could add affirmative action. So the court is likely to issue some rulings on which they're going to be pretty closely divided. I mean, the justices love this sort of balls and strikes, we're just the umpires, and we call them like this, we see them metaphor. Um, and this is something that every time, in particular, we have a confirmation hearing that I feel like I spend a lot of time pushing back on. The cases that come to the Supreme Court get there because they're hard. You know, either in many of the Supreme Court's cases, particularly the ones that are not necessarily the juicy cases, but a lot of the Supreme Court's cases come there because 
the judges in the lower courts who are very smart people, all of the current justices except for Justice Kagan came there from the lower courts, um, reached different conclusions about the issues that the justices have been asked to decide, or they're just really hard questions. And you need, you know, they, you can't, if, if they were so, if they were straightforward questions, you know, robots could decide them, but you need some sort of guiding principle or guiding philosophy to decide cases. And the judicial philosophies and guiding principles of the justices these days, and therefore their votes mostly map on to the political parties of the presidents that appointed them. Like it used to be that, you know, David Souter was appointed by a Republican, um, but voted liberal. John Paul Stevens appointed by a Republican, but voted liberal. But that's really not the case anymore. And so justices may 100% believe that they are deciding based on legal principles and politicians may want to believe that too, but they choose justices whom they think are going to use these legal principles to get to the results that they want. Um, and so as far as making, you know, blaming it on the media, obviously I, you know, I'm a little biased, but I think that that blame is misplaced. I think it's politicians who have politicized the court. You, you don't need to look much further than you know, something like Donald Trump, saying, I'm going to appoint justices who will overturn Roe versus Wade or politicians who complain about judicial activism whenever there's a decision that they don't like. I, I don't really think that the media pointing out that, you know, that a particular justice was appointed by a Democratic or Republican president and that the justices are divided is, is really the problem here. That was quite a rant, but no, I obviously I have thoughts on it on it too. Um, but I I think they'll continue to give speeches. We'll see um, if one of those three theories kind of emerges as the the top one. But well, uh, it's certainly curious. And I I will play a clip from the Thomas speech. Um, I can't play a clip from the Barrett speech because there was no recording of that speech, or at least no recording for dissemination. I believe at least some reporters who had a heads up that the event was happening um, were allowed to record, but just for note-taking purposes, so. You know, I think that they think that we make policy. I think the media makes it sound as though you are just always going right to your personal preference. So if you, they think you're anti-abortion or something personally, they think that that's the way you always will come out. They think you're for this or for that. They think you you become like a politician. And I think that's that's a problem. To the, when I think you're gonna you're gonna jeopardize any faith in the legal institutions. So speaking of, of sort of transparency and the justices, you you wrote about that in Politico. Can you talk a little bit about it? I did write a bit about it in Politico, and my major point was if this is really the problem, and if any of those three theories is really why the justices are doing it, it can't be the answer to host and talk about it to an invite only crowd without a heads up to the media and with no public access to their words. That just can't be the best or most effective solution to any of the problems that they seem to be complaining about consistently across the spectrum. And so my point was, this is an opportunity for the justices to uh, fix the issue and proposed a number of ways for them to do that, including adding cameras in the courtroom to turn 
the courtroom into, you know, a ready-made civics lesson. It can be a real live classroom for the American people. And of course there are the incredibly boring cases as Nina Totenberg says that even the press corps wants to fall asleep during sometimes. But um, I think that, that there's a real opportunity for the people to learn and perhaps learn the difference between the politicized view of the court that they're complaining about and the court that they would rather be perceived as moving forward. Um, and then the other two were, of course, kind of unveil the shadow docket, um, you know, no more middle of the night unsigned single paragraph opinions that have these huge implications uh, for women in Texas and and for people seeking asylum and and for huge groups of people. And then finally, I'm not sure how many people know or don't know that the media doesn't get alerted to when a justice speaks. And so, you know, it would be helpful, not only for the American people to have access every time a justice opens their mouth, but for the press to do that too. And, and that's because it gives a backstop as well, right? If, if they are complaining with how the media perceives um, and portrays the court in their writing and in, in television, then just give the people direct access so that they can compare for themselves. So they can see for themselves how oral argument went, how that speech went, what the justice said, how they said it. Um, I'm a, a huge advocate for transparency generally, of course, given my background, but that was generally the, uh, the overview of, of my piece with Politico was um, either invite us into the classroom, turn the court into a classroom by turning the cameras on or um, take this opportunity to teach and, and who better to do it than the nine, you know, who better to, to uh, clarify what they're complaining of than the justices themselves. Yes. Now, many of us were standing and cheering when we read that. Uh, you know, one point in particular that Justice Barrett made was that the reporting on the court's decision sort of misses the nuance. And the really obvious answer to that is to release the opinion audio. Um, you know, for listeners who don't track this on a regular basis, the Supreme Court now, since the pandemic, is live streaming its oral arguments. And even before the pandemic, they were releasing the audio of oral arguments the same week, which obviously was not ideal, but was better than nothing. So if a, a case was argued on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you'd get the audio on Friday. It was sort of um, better a couple of days late than never. But when a justice sits in the courtroom and reads a summary of his or her opinion, that audio is not released until the following fall, um, at which point it's too late to be useful to anyone for really anything. You can you can hear it on Oya's and it's nice to listen to, but it's really just sort of for the historians at that point. Um, so like releasing, if, if your complaint is that the, that people need more nuance, what better way to to get the nuance and to release the opinion announcements. Um, and I know that the, the counter argument to that is that supposedly that the summaries that justices read are, are summaries that the authoring justice usually drafts him or herself and may not reflect all of the views of the justices who join the opinion. There may not be time to make sure that everyone is on board. 
I mean, I just feel like at this point you can't have it both ways, but they can say that they can say this is, you know, the author of the opinion wrote this, and this is not necessarily agreed upon by the majority, you know, I mean, more transparency, more information, yeah. not less. Yes. Not gated access to the justices, which is what, uh, which is what we have, but also more nuance, um, uh, would come with who voted in shadow docket cases and more than a single paragraph explanation uh, for major decisions. I mean, there's not much nuance in a single paragraph order with no vote count. No, there is not. Well, thank you for explaining to us the long conference and a bit of griping uh, from the media's perspective, of course, predictable, I imagine, but it wasn't griping. It. it was constructive criticism. <laughs> Potato, potato, but uh, <laughs> it's always good to learn something. Now I'm going to go work on my long conference TikTok and All right, see, how, see how they enjoy that. Can't wait to see it. All right. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Katie. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Go, and James Ramoser.